This evening's scripture will be Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. For, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that dying, denying unto God godliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the, for the blessed hope and glor glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you, Nick, for reading our scripture. Nick does a great job. All of our young guys do a great job. And so we're very grateful for Nick. I was just thinking this morning about how far some of our young guys have come. And it seems like just yesterday they were little fellas, and now they're, well, growing up. And so we're glad that uh, they're willing to serve, and we appreciate so much their growth. Tonight I want to call your attention to Titus chapter 2. 11 through 13, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, the passage that Nick read a moment ago. Tonight we're going to be thinking about the theme, blessed to give our best. All of us would say that we are blessed people. We're blessed because God has benefited us in so many ways. We think about all the great blessings that we enjoyed this past week, Thanksgiving week. We pause in the middle of our busy lives to give thanks for all the great things that God does for us. Spiritually speaking, we are tremendously blessed. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that every spiritual blessing known to man resides in Christ Jesus. And so if you're in Christ, you are a blessed person. And really, I think what Paul is saying to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, is that if you are blessed, then you need to give your best. And so I think it's... God's people, as children of God, we ought to do our best. We ought to give our best every day. And so with that in mind, I want to call attention to verses 11 through 13, a very simplistic lesson tonight, a very simplistic text. Listen again to what Paul said beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Really what Paul is saying here, writing to those of us who belong to the body of Christ, is that we are liberated people. We have been liberated by the love of God and the grace of God. I want to begin by, first of all, as we think about how we are liberated people, I want us to think for just a moment, ago, for just a moment or two about the motivation behind our liberation, the motivation behind God's grace. If somebody were to ask you, what motivated God to save us? How would you respond? What would you say to those who might inquire of you, why would God in heaven, why would He ever save those of us who belong to the human family? Well, let me sum it up in one word. That one word is love. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, But God, who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive together with Christ, he said, By grace are you saved, and that not of yourselves. And then he said, 
that God has raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And we talk about being rich people. And what Paul is saying is that God has showered upon us riches from heaven, hasn't He? And so in verse 8, he would say, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast or any man should glory. Now look at Titus chapter 3. And listen to what Paul says about this motivating factor behind the grace of God. Verse 4, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So really the backdrop behind the catalyst to save us God's great love. We talked this morning about the love of God, and you begin reading the Scriptures. Go back to the Old Testament and read about the love of God and how God showered His love upon the children of Israel and how they were the channel through whom the Christ, the Messiah, would come. In the New Testament, over and over again, what does the Bible have to say about the love of God? I think about Jesus in John chapter 3. His conversation with Nicodemus. And Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The world was under condemnation. And God sent His Son, His only begotten, the only one of a kind, into the world to save us. So we think about the motivation behind the grace of God. But then what about the manifestation of the grace of God? How did God show His grace and His mercy toward us? Well, I could sum that up in one word, Jesus. Jesus Christ came to save us, didn't He? Now the Bible says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to every man. Jesus was God incarnate, wasn't He? In other words, He was God in the flesh. John said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he said, We beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul said that Jesus emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. He said, yes, even the death of the cross. The cross is God's manifestation of His love and His desire for our salvation, isn't it? Over and over again, the Bible talks about the love of God, the grace of God, and the willingness of Christ to come to earth to save or to redeem us. Do you remember... Back in Matthew chapter 1, when the angel of God appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him that Mary would bear a son, and he said, His name shall be called Jesus. And he said, 
It is He that shall save His people from their sins. Jesus, while upon planet earth, said the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. When Jesus went to the cross, that was God affirming His love for us, fulfilling His redemptive plan, and thus tonight we have the opportunity to be redeemed, to be reconciled. So, we are liberated people. But there's a second thing. Paul says not only are we liberated people, but we are educated people. Listen to him in verse 11. He said, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. I want to submit to you tonight that wherever God's grace goes, it is always accompanied by teaching. Wherever God's grace goes, it is always accompanied by teaching. Back in Genesis chapter 6, we have a record of the first time the word grace is used in Scripture. I don't think that's the first time God demonstrated His grace toward man. That would have been reflected back in the garden. But explicitly, God speaks of Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. God had said that every imagination of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. And so in light of that, God said, I will destroy man whom I have created. And God decreed He would destroy both man and beast by means of a flood. And so here is Noah finding grace in the eyes of God. Noah was a man that enjoyed fellowship with God. And so down in verse 14, God said, here's what I want you to do, Noah. I want you to build an ark of gopher wood. He said, I want you to build that ark 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. He said, rooms you'll pitch in that ark. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 22, Thus did Noah according, listen to him, all that God commanded him. So did he. So what do you have there? You have God's grace, don't you? You have divine instruction. You have faith on the part of Noah to build that ark. Somebody this past week in Bible class was talking about having visited the museum, and I think in Indiana, where a scale model of the ark has been built. And they were talking about what an object lesson that is to see this massive boat sitting on dry land. Wasn't that how it appeared in the days of Noah? Noah's out here building this ark. And people must have been saying, Noah, what in the world are you doing? Why are you building a vessel like this? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with godly fear, preparing an ark for the saving of his household and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So you have God's grace. You have God's instructions. You have Noah demonstrating great faith to build that ark. Faith and obedience. So let me ask this question. When you look at the New Testament and you think about the grace of God, does not the grace of God teach us how to be saved? It did in Noah's day. What about in Joshua chapter 6 when God said to the children of Israel, He said, See, I have given you Jericho. 
the king. God is saying to the children of Israel, look, I'm giving you this land. And then God laid down instructions that they were to follow in taking the land. You remember God said that they were to take the priest. The priest would go before the Ark of the Covenant along with the men of war. And they were to march around the city how many times? One time for six days. Every day for six days. On the seventh day, they were to walk around the city seven times, and then they were to blow the trumpets, and then the people were to shout. And what did God do on that occasion? He gave them the city, didn't He? Did they have to comply with the instructions given by God in order to appropriate the grace to receive Jericho? Yes, they did. God said, look, I'm giving you the land. You want the land? Here's what you need to do. If you'll do this, I'll give it to you. So now we come to the New Testament. And we think about what God says to be saved. It might seem elementary to us, but I promise you there are a lot of folks in our world, there are a lot of people in the religious world, they have been taught something other than God's divine teaching with regard to salvation. I mean, we could just pick up in Acts chapter 2. The central theme of Acts chapter 2 is Jesus of Nazareth, the one who had been crucified, and then, as Peter said, God had raised him from the dead. And Peter said this very Christ who's been raised from the dead has now been exalted to the right hand of God where he now sits. He has all authority from the right hand of God. And so in verse 36 he said, Look, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you've crucified, he said, God has made him both Lord and Christ. In verse 37, the Bible says, when they heard this, in other words, when they heard this great lesson, they were cut, pricked in their hearts. And they cried out unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? God had already fulfilled his promise of sending a redeemer into the world, had he not? Do you remember during the ministry of Jesus? He said, my meat, my work is to do the will of him who sent me. Do you remember in John chapter 6 when Jesus said, look, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In John chapter 17, Jesus said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. While hanging upon Calvary's cross, did Jesus not say, it is finished? Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And Paul said he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness through the resurrection from the dead. And so Jesus has been raised from the dead. God's work of redemption has been fulfilled. And these folks are cut to the heart. And they want to know, they want to know okay, what do we need to do to enjoy the blessings of salvation. What was it Peter said? What Peter said conflicts with what typically people hear all around this country. Matter of fact, all around the globe. Because Peter said, number one, you need to repent. He said, number two, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. So how then do I become a child of God? Well, Peter just said it. Did these people believe in Jesus? 
He said, You men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by many miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in your midst. They knew about Jesus. Some of those very people had probably been present when he was crucified. So they believed that Jesus was the Son of God, didn't they? And Peter said, all right, as people who believe in the Son of God, here's what you need to do. You need to repent of your sins. Because the Bible says God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. Acts chapter 17, verse 34. And then you need to be baptized into Christ for the remission or the forgiveness of your sins. So what do you have? God's grace? Yes. The redemptive work of God has been fulfilled on Calvary by Jesus. So you have, as we say sometimes, God's part has been executed. So what's our part? What do we have to do to appropriate the grace of God, the mercy of God, and forgiveness? Exactly what Peter said. No more and no less. Well, what was that? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Now just think for a minute. You're present in the city of Jerusalem and you're surrounded by thousands upon thousands of people and you have just heard for the first time the gospel of Christ being preached and you are cut to the heart. You recognize that you're in sin, you need a redeemer. That redeemer has already shed his blood and you can appropriate that blood but you need to do something, don't you? And so what do you do? You ask explicitly, what do we need to do? What shall we do? Did Peter say, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to repent of all of your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, recite this prayer, and then you'll be saved. Is that what Peter said? So if that's not what Peter said, why then would people have the idea that that's what they can do and be saved? You remember in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, when Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Could I, could I ask you a question? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about when he made that statement? You think he did? Now you may say, well, that sounds absurd. Why in the world would I question what Jesus said? Look, people are questioning it every single day, aren't they? How many times do people wave off being baptized into Christ? Where God's grace goes, it is always accompanied by what? By instruction. So Jesus said, he that believeth, number one, and is baptized, number two, shall be saved. So again, the question do you believe what Jesus said is true? Yes or no? Somebody says, that's absurd. I agree. Why would I question what Jesus said? After all, He has all authority, Matthew 28, 18. God the Father said we're to hear Him, Matthew 17, 5. So why in the world would I question what Jesus said? Why in the world would I question what Peter said? What about Saul of Tarsus? After appearing to Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul spent three days doing what? What was he doing? He was praying, wasn't he? All right, Saul, were you saved then? You've been praying to Almighty God. I hear folks on the radio say, look, just recite this prayer, accept Jesus into your heart, and you'll be saved. 
Ananias said, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. So when were the sins of Saul of Tarsus, when were they washed away? Before he was baptized or after he was baptized? While he was praying or after he was baptized? What would you say? I'm going to tell you what. He was saved when he did exactly what God said to do. Saved by grace through obedient faith. Now, did I work my way to heaven in complying with the will of Almighty God? No, I did not. And I hear folks saying today, when you're baptized into Christ, then what you're doing is working your way to salvation. False. False. That is false to the core. How do I know that? I want you to look at Colossians chapter 2 for just a minute. And I want to take some time and look at this because I think it's important that we understand when we talk about the grace of God, we are liberated people, yes, but we are also educated people. So look at Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul said, In him, that is in Christ, you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Back during the days of Abraham, God instituted circumcision, didn't He? It was a surgical procedure that involved the cutting away of human flesh. So now what Paul is saying is, when we are baptized into Christ, there is a spiritual circumcision that takes place. It involves the cutting away, but not something that is physical in nature, but rather it involves the cutting away of our sins. So, with that in mind, look at verse, look at verse 12 now. Paul said, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. Some translations say, through faith of the operation of God. That's exactly what happens, isn't it? When we're baptized into Jesus Christ, there is a surgical procedure performed on us, on our heart. Well, who does the surgery? Who does the operation? God does, doesn't He? So what Paul is saying is, when you're baptized into Christ, God cuts away those sins. They're removed. Listen to him again. Buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the operation of God or in the working of God. Now, I hear folks saying in the world today that when we're baptized, we're engaging in some kind of meritorious work. Well, I would agree that during baptism there is a work going on, but who's doing the work? Who's, who's performing the surgery? God is, isn't He? So if anyone is working when we're baptized into Christ, it's God. What's God doing? He's cutting away those sins. That's why Ananias said, Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. So look at now if you would, in verse 13, he said, In you, being dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So when were we forgiven? When we obeyed the gospel. When we did exactly what God said to do. If we do what God says to do, then is it not the case that we appropriate the grace of God? Now think about it this way for a moment. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Paul said salvation resides in one place, that's in Christ Jesus. The only way to get into Christ is to be baptized into Him. Why do I need to be baptized into Jesus Christ? Well, 
Jesus died on Calvary's cross shedding His blood, right? In order to appropriate His blood, I have to go where it was shed. And the only way that I can appropriate that blood is to be baptized into Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Know ye not that all we who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Now, that might seem elementary to us, but there is a world full of people that have yet to hear what God has to say about becoming a child of God. God's grace teaches us what to do to be saved. Not only does God's grace teach us what to do to be saved, God's grace teaches us what to do to stay saved, doesn't it? Did Paul not write in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture, every scripture given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work? How then can I become a mature Christian in the eyes of God? What's, what's my source? What's my resource? It's the Word of God, isn't it? So what does the Bible have to say about staying saved? Well, first and foremost, I've got to be fruitful, don't I? Remember what Jesus taught? John 15, verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified, listen to Him, that you bear much fruit. Romans chapter 6, Paul asked the question, What fruit did you have in the things which you are now ashamed? He said, The end of those things is death. But now, he said, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So when we manifest holiness in our lives, that is a fruit, is it not? Yes, it is. Jesus said we're to bear fruit. That's just one way we do it. Engaging in good works, another way that we bear fruit for God. As a matter of fact, in Titus chapter 2, in verse 7, Paul would say that we are to show ourselves as a pattern for good works. The church brings honor and glory to God. Those of us who are in individual members of the body of Christ, we engage in good works. We do so to bring honor and glory to God and to let His light shine in all the world. So we have to be fruitful, but then secondly, faithful, don't we? Do you remember Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 said, Be ye steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? If we're steadfast in the faith and striving to the best of our ability to, as John said, walk in the light, walk in harmony with His Word, are we not faithful? Have we not complied with the will of Jesus when He said, Be faithful until death? The promise being the crown of life, Revelation 2.10? The answer is yes. So, Paul says in verse 11, we are liberated people. In the, first part of in the first part of chapter 2, verse 12, he says we are educated people. And then thirdly, he says we are regulated people. Listen again to what Paul said. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us that what? Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. First, Paul talks about our ethical behavior, doesn't he? What he's saying is, as a child of God, there is a right way to live and there is a wrong way to live. 
So if you look at what he's saying in verse 12, Paul is stressing that we need to live principled, pure lives in the eyes of God. Are the forces of the world clamping down on us? Is the world doing everything within its power to shape and to mold our thinking, our daily thoughts, our actions, our deeds? The answer is yes. And so here you have the Apostle Paul writing to the saints in Rome and saying, look, do not let the world pour you into its mold. Don't let the world conform you into one of its own. You came out of the world. Why would you want to go back into the world? Do you remember the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39? Would you say that Joseph, at the age of 17, just a teenager, would you say that he was a principled young man, a young man of purity? I think the answer is yes. Because you see in that narration of the events in Potiphar's house, Moses tells us that there were advances made by Potiphar's wife. She tried to seduce him. And you think about it, here's a young fellow, 17 years of age, and I suspect Potiphar's wife was probably some more beautiful lady. So here he is away from family and friends. He's away from home. Who's going to know? Who would know? And you know, if you read Genesis chapter 39, Moses said that he was pressed by her. In other words, she is on him, as we would say, hot and heavy. So he finally says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph was a principled young man. He was a young man of purity. Is there a lesson there for us? Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5, keep yourself pure. I understand how the world operates. And it can be made to look so good. And it, it sounds good. And there are folks that are, as we would sometimes say, living it up in the world. The world is glamorized by Hollywood. From the East Coast to the West Coast, from the North to the South. And there is so much pressure. I think about young folks. The pressure to conform, to give in. You know, sometimes not just young folks, but those of us who are older folks. When you get older, and I think sometimes we have the idea that as we grow older, the temptation to engage in worldly behavior, that that temptation will pass. Look, it just comes in different forms and packages, but it still comes. And so... There are folks going to tell you, not just when you're a teenager, but also as you get older, here's what you need. You need to drink. You need to smoke. Smoke some weed, smoke pot. Take other types of drugs. Listen, you belong to God. We all belong to God, don't we? Why would we want to put anything in our body that would, number one, defile our body? And number two, destroy our body. 
Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 what Paul said? And really what Paul was saying was, the Lord has laid claim to your life. He said, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have from God. He said, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and spirit, which are God's. Paul's saying, look, God deserves better, doesn't he? We've been blessed, haven't we? We talk about how blessed we are. And what Paul is saying is, look, we are blessed to give our best. We don't have to engage in that worldly stuff to enjoy life, to find joy and happiness and satisfaction and contentment. You don't need that junk. That's what Paul's saying. You can live a righteous, godly life in Christ Jesus and be the happiest person on earth. The world says you can't, but God says you can. You see, the bottom line is, as Christians, we're supposed to have died to that old way of life. So in Romans chapter 6, Paul asks the question, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he said, God forbid, how shall we that have died to sin live any longer therein? All he's saying is, look, God expects better out of you. Why? Because you've been blessed to give your best. You don't need to be messing around with that stuff in the world. Let me just very quickly say this. I know sometimes folks in the church, I know sometimes folks in the church, they drink, they smoke, they smoke weed, they take, they take other types of drugs, they engage in sexual relations outside of marriage, they do what the world does. And let me tell you what, when they do what the world does, it casts a negative light on Christianity. You want to destroy the influence of the church, then just act like people in the world. Because sometimes that's what folks act like. And so what's the old saying? If it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, looks like a duck, it's a duck. So we're either a child of God or we're a child of the devil. Just that simple. So ethical behavior and then expectant behavior. Listen now very quickly. Look if you would at verse 13. Paul said, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All Paul's saying, in a nutshell, is you need to be looking for Jesus. Because He's coming. He's coming sometime. Someday, the Lord is coming. Of that day and hour, knows no man, not the angels of heaven, but as Jesus said, my Father only. Have you ever thought what it will be like when Jesus comes? He might come in our lifetime. Can you imagine the people on the West Coast, those, those on the East Coast, those to the North, those to the South? Every eye, John said, will see Him. When Jesus comes, everyone will know it. In Revelation chapter 22, John closes out that book by making this statement, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. What would you think if Jesus came tonight? What would you think? He could come. And Paul is saying, as Christians, we need to live with the expectation that he can come at any hour.
So are we blessed? Yes, we are. Should we give our best? Yes, we should. So could I ask you, as a blessed person, are you giving your best? If you're here tonight and you're not giving your best, could I encourage you to make some changes in your life and to decide right now God's going to get your very best because you're blessed and you're blessed to give your best. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Christ believing that Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be, the Son of God. Repent of all your sins, confess His name before others, be immersed in water, let God cut away all of your sins. Let Him put you in the church and live faithfully until death and the promise is the Stephanos, the victor's crown. Won't you come as we stand and sing?